From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. I was having dinner with some friends in New York on Saturday, and we started talking about what shows we're all watching. Literally, every couple had a different answer. Some people were into Ozark, the Jason Bateman crime show on Netflix. Uh, A few other people were into Fauda, the Israeli action show. Others were finally getting around to Patriot and Catastrophe. What was most stunning, which I guess shouldn't be a surprise anymore, was that no one had heard of the other people's shows. So, on one hand, it gives me a stomachache that something as good as Patriot, which is Steve Conrad's spy show on Amazon, isn't being talked about more. It's such a weird, smart, unique show with a tone unlike anything you've ever seen before. It's a deconstruction of the spy genre while also being just a really fun spy show. But on the other hand, something as deeply weird as Patriot probably wouldn't have gotten made before there were so many niche outlets. So I guess I hate that it's not more mainstream, but what I love about it is that it's not mainstream. I guess I gotta get over that. Anyway, some of the fun of this podcast is getting to talk to people who are writing these buzzy, great shows. On the pod today, we have Dana Calvo, who's written a lot of the kind of TV people talk about at Saturday Night Dinners. Dana was one of the top writers on Narcos, the show about Pablo Escobar on Netflix, which has been insanely good through three seasons. She also created a couple shows that have gone to series, including Good Girls Revolt on Amazon last year, which everybody was talking about because it seemed to be doing really well, but got canceled after the first season anyway. Dana talked about uh, her feelings about the cancellation at length elsewhere, so we're not going to get into it here. Uh, But it seems like Dana is really at the top of her game right now. She's coming off these huge series. I'm excited to talk to her about how she writes, what she writes, when she writes, go deep into her craft. We've spoken, but I've actually never met uh, her before. So I'm excited. Here's Dana. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft, we're spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out screencraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Okay. Um, hi, Dana. Hi. Nice to, nice to be speaking with you. Yeah, you too. So it's, uh, it's about 9 a.m. in L.A. Uh, I was going to say, I assume you haven't started writing yet, but maybe you have. Oh, I have. I've been up writing for about an hour. That's really impressive. So, well, so give me a sense of that. So you wake up at like, what, 6, 6.30? 30 about on the days I take my daughter to school. I mean, I'm not back at the house for a while, right. um, but this morning her dad took her. And so I use this time, you know, I caffeinate up and these early morning hours for me are, are great. Yeah. If I do two or three really intense hours of writing, that's sort of, you know, writing at a whole cloth. That's a day's um, work. Yeah, Get I mean, I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself. I know that for people who have real jobs, it doesn't sound like a lot, but I'm really proud of myself. And then the rest of the day is, you know, editing or memorizing pitches or research. Um, but the the real writing, I try to, I really try to turn my phone off um, and just use that time. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I remember seeing a documentary of Philip Roth once where he talked about his goal. He wrote three pages a day. 
And if that mm. took him 45 minutes, he's done for the day. If it took him eight hours, you know, that's all it takes, but he gets that done. Stephen King talks a lot about that too, about sitting in a chair and forcing himself to just write a certain page count. And he, he doesn't even allow himself to get up and go to the bathroom unless he's hit that page count. You know, um, it's funny. I don't do page count, but maybe I should try since those guys have they seem to have cracked it. <laughs> well, so what do you do? So did you just you set up two, you had two hours and you just let it roll? Um, yeah. I mean, I, as much it, as you it's can always get done. disheartening to read what you've written the day before and right. realize that, you know, 70% of it, probably not keepable. But, um, you know, little by little, step by step. So you so, do that, you read yesterday's work before you get started on today's? I usually actually read the morning work, like this, late this afternoon, I'll read what I read this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I always say, you know, it has to pass the overnight test. So then I'll, I'll read it again in the morning. Interesting. I try not to do that. I try to write a full draft without going back because, yeah, it, it's humiliating. If I read yesterday's work and it was awful, that's just too demoralizing to write today's work. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable to me how much I throw out. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Now it's making me feel like my whole morning was a waste. So right. thanks for that. <laughs> uh, well, apologies for that, but you got the rest of the day ahead of you if you do want to go back to work. Um, yeah. Well, so and now I'm memorizing two pitches for the rest of the day. So I, oh, you know, it's it's a different part of my brain. So I want to I want to use that fresh, you know, that fresh morning brain to to writing. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, so as long as you brought up pitching, so how do you do? You? Do you do you write out when you're when you're about to take out a pitch to to studios and networks? Do you write it out like a script and then memorize it, or do you just do bullet points or what? Oh, I absolutely memorize it. It's like a, a radio show, you know. Um, and I have a broadcast pitch. I'm pitching uh, two outlets on Thursday, and then a dark cable pitch. I'm pitching with someone else um, with Plan B in the mm. next few weeks. And they're very, very different pitches. I think they reflect sort of the audience, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the broadcast pitch is much looser, much more conversational. There's more room for ad lib. And the dark cable drama is, um, I mean, we have really sort of massaged every word of that pitch. Right. And, um, yeah, I do the memory palace trick to oh, memorize these pitches. Yeah, I mean, some of these pitches are 35 minutes long. Um so I have disgusting images in my mind of each part of the pits, just like they, they say you should do. And that's, that's how I remember them. So did you get that from um, Josh Four's book, Moonwalking with exactly. Einstein? Oh, so yeah. funny. I grew up with Josh. Um, so the, I, I completely agree with you. I do, I do it the same way. I memorize it word for word because I'm sure you've gone back and forth with plan B a million times. And then to not do that, to turn it into bullet points, I almost feel like is offensive to the studio or the production company that you've been working with, you know, massaging every yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah, and I also, I mean, podcaster, I, I love radio. I love the spoken word. And so to me, if you can write out this this campfire tale in a pitch, um, it just flows. Bullet points. And I don't want to put myself under that pressure of having to sort of storify a bullet point in the room. Right, right. And so a 35-minute pitch is actually, I mean, that that's a long, that's a long pitch. Yeah. I, I try to go for, you know, 20 minutes. Um, but maybe that's just because I'm self-conscious and no one's going to want to stare at my face for longer than 20 minutes. Uh, just 35, well, the, the is that your sweet spot? Yeah. Well, no, the broadcast pitch is probably 17 minutes. Um, but this dark cable drama that I'm doing with another writer, I think we're at 35 minutes. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the animal it needs to be for the clients and the vendors and all that. Right. So you don't have a set amount of time you like to pitch for. You just, depending on what the project is, you let it go for as long as it needs to go. 
Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, so, so I mean, you're wh- when you said you were writing something this morning, is that yet a third project? Is that something it is, else? And that's actually the only thing I'm, that's my only income so far uh-huh. for 2018, um, that I'm on outline for a script. Right. Yeah. For MRC, the studio that does house of cards. So right. I'm writing the outline and I don't know, I don't know how you feel about outlines, but they are uh, so, so difficult for me and yet so helpful. Would you, if it was up to you, if you weren't working with the studio that you had to turn in outline pages to, would you not use an outline? Would you just write? Exactly. I would not do an outline. Oh, I, and my favorite, my favorite and most enjoyable scripts I've ever written have just been for me. And these two scripts um, I'm thinking about in particular were just for me. Um, I never sold them. And yet they became, in a weird way, they became my most, they got me my most work. Um, I never sold them because they were so genuinely my voice, I think. And I just wrote them, you know, from top to bottom. That's interesting. Did you have the structure in your head that you just didn't write down or you didn't even have that? I mean, one of them, I literally had like four or five little lines on the back of a grocery store receipt. I just knew that I wanted to start, you know, it it was so loose. But the other one um, was a really joyful process. And I sort of found the story and even added characters as I went. Um, But I've, maybe people, I mean, maybe like Aaron Sorkin can do that. I I can't do it for people that have actually hired me. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a funny, it's a funny business when you're working with all these studios and and um, production companies. You you have to churn out outlines just so we can all be on the same page, and that does end up saving time because if you end up writing the script that they're not happy with, you know, they can always you can always say, well, you didn't say anything at the outline stage. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan of outlines. Um, it just for me, it it you know helps form the ideas and, and helps put the structure in place and then writing it um, is kind of a breeze when you have a good outline. Oh my um, gosh, I completely agree. And, oh, I, and okay. I also don't, yeah, I don't. And, and that's why I sort of, I had such a love hate relationship with them because I, I do not enjoy writing them. They're really hard. And yet I know they're really hard because they don't allow me to fake it. Right. 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 So do you, in an outline, will you put in dialogue? Will you put in any lines that are going to be in the eventual script? Or is it just sort of like prose document? You know, I'm really sparse, sparse with my dialogue in, only because over time I've learned I don't want to give them too much to pick at, right, <laughs> meaning right. the executives. I want totally. to sort of be specific about story and place and character, but vague about dialogue so that I'm not, so that they're not thinking, whoa, whoa, is that the tone of the scene? You know, it just, right. you really want to stay, like, keep them focused on, nope, this is just the scaffolding of the house. I'll right. decorate it in script. Right. Interesting. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so overall, I mean, y- you know, you've been, you've been on staff of shows. You've had your own shows over the last few years. You've been in writer's rooms, running writer's rooms. Um, but right now you're developing. And, you know, and for listeners who don't know, there are really sort of two tracks for TV writers. You can be on the writing staff of a show or you can be pitching and writing your own pilots, which is called developing. Um, I'm developing too right now. But so I'm curious, you know, what's it like? For, how are you liking now not being on staff of a show, but just developing? How, how are you liking all the alone time? Um, how are you doing with it? Um, well, I'm now curious about you because <laughs> I, I love developing from home because I love being able to sort of be in a hoodie and yoga pants all day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, I have to tell you that after, you know, a year plus, I mean, I, I haven't been home for a year yet, um, but I, I know myself and after 
14 months or so, I start to get a little antsy. So what I'm trying to say is I love the variety. You yeah. know, I love both sides of it. How about, is that how you feel? Um, I want to kill myself if I don't have a reason to put on pants in the morning. I need okay. to get up and go somewhere. I mean, I, I rent an office in, in New York where I live, you know, so that I will get up and go. Um, where, you know, I could very easily write from my living room, but that's just, for me, that's too depressing. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I need the, I, I don't know, I need people around, I need energy. Um, it's, but it's, it's tricky. I mean, I think you're right to go back and forth. So you can imagine, well, so you've now created two shows that have gone to air, um, mm-hmm. right? Maiden, Jersey, and Good Girls mm-hmm. Revolt. Yeah. Um, would you ever go work on someone else's show again? Would you go be on set? Sure. You would. Oh yeah. You sure. want to go back into a writer's room? I mean, I, good writer's rooms are so fun and they, they remind me of great fun sports teams. There's that chemistry, um, and that kinetic energy. And even if you're working on a dark drama, I mean, I have laughed so hard in so many writer's rooms and made such good friends. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, so you wrote on, on Narcos a couple of years ago, right? Which is one of my did, favorite yeah. shows. Oh my God. I love Thank that. You. So what's the writer's yeah. room like in that, on that show? Was this um, first season, second season? First season. We had launched the show. Um, first seasons are for any show, I think, as you know, really dicey propositions. Everyone's nervous. There's a lot of money at stake. The studio has not been able to amortize or get back any of their investments. So the studio is rightfully so nervous. Um, and as sort of you move up the ranks in the writer's room, you go from being a baby writer to mid-level to senior. And then having had your own show or being a co-EP on a show, you do start to sympathize with a little bit with how nervous these produce, the, these studio executives are. I mean, you know, that's how they measure the success of their job, whether they can midwife these shows into hardy young adults. So um, you have to sort of balance that. Um, so with Narcos, one of the things was it became pretty clear pretty early on that we needed someone down in Colombia at all times. So Chris Broncato, the co-creator of the show, relocated down there for nine oh, months. I didn't know that. Wow. With his yeah. family. That's amazing. Um, well, he, they came and visited him quite often, but I mean, that guy, he was working so hard. Chris has such a terrific work ethic and, yeah. um, he was under unbelievable pressure, um, Gaumont was the French studio in charge of Netflix. That was it, by the way, side note, like dream studio and network Gaumont studios Mm -hmm. with Netflix. Oh my God. They just sort of got out of our way and said, make the best show. Is that right? That's Um, incredibly rare. uh, That's awesome. It's so rare. And I I do think it's one of the reasons Netflix has had so much, at least my experience on Narcos was so joyful. Um, But, you know, at one point I remember a conversation I had with Chris and I was like, you know, we we kept thinking this was going to be a show where it had some subtitles. I said, but we have just pages and pages of conversations between yeah. Colombians. There's That's no incredible. reason they should speak English. What are we going to do? Like, I'm looking at a script, and if I had to back of the envelope it, it's 75% Spanish. You know, and you both sort of sit with that for a second and think, okay, <laughs> we we have to tell our partners at the studio this, right. or we have to reimagine it. And, and you, you know, went we, for we, it. Well, so, and we called, to their credit, we called Goman and we called Netflix and there was a pause and they said, great. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, cause yeah. that's one of the most stunning things about the show, how much, yeah. um, subtitles there is. Yeah. That's incredible. And you also have to think, you know, people watch TV now, um, multitasking, right. they're on their phone, they're doing all this stuff. So to, to, this is, um, you know, you're gambling that they're going to be able to not fold laundry 
play, you know, words with friends and all that stuff on their phones, they're actually going to sit and watch it. Yeah. Which I love. I'm, you know, you really do. Right. People have to, not only because of the subtitles, but also because, you know, the storylines and the character arcs are incredibly complicated on Narcos. So yeah, people really do need to just like sit and watch TV as they used to, which I love. Um, and so, so with Chris in, uh, with Chris in South America for nine months, you uh, obviously were one of the senior writers in the room. So, were you helping to run the room? What What was yeah. it like? How How would it? How would you coordinate with Chris being so far away and in a different time zone? Oh my gosh, emails and conference calls. Um, you know, and every single show is different. So, um, every single show is different, and yeah. so you just. You really try to be flexible and try to adapt. There are different personalities, different constraints. I mean, uh, you know, doing Good Girls Revolt versus Narcos was just incredibly different, if only because we had, you know, I worked above the sound stages on Good Girls Revolt in the same building. That's great. And when you're doing Narcos, the writer's room is many, many miles away, time zones, language difference. Right. Um, so you just have to roll with it a little bit. Right. Um and so, did you have did you have a lot of time on Narcos? I mean, I assume was that you you did the whole first season before you started shooting, or was it simultaneous, or what? Um, we had banked a couple of scripts, and then you know that's it. I think also, as you know, that production schedule that train comes barreling yeah. down the tracks, and you you better <laughs> be able to cat you know to stay ahead of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many writers did you have in the in the room on Narcos? I might be wrong on this. I want to say about seven or eight. Yeah. Um, several of us were bilingual. Uh, there was a playwright. There was a documentary film producer. It was just a really eclectic, cool room Chris put together. Yeah. Um, and there was, it was so research heavy. Uh, we also had many consultants on it, including the, the real DEA agents who brought Pablo Escobar down. Oh, cool. Um, and we just took a lot. We just dove into tons of source material. And Pablo Escobar is one of these, you know, colorful characters that if we had pitched most of the stories you see in Narcos, we'd have been shot down in a writer's room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it just goes to show the real stuff you can't make up. Totally. So you also wrote on one of my favorite shows, Studio 60. Mm. Uh, Was that, I mean, I can imagine more of a, maybe a tricky writer's room, whereas, you know, you're helping to run Narcos with Studio 60. You're at the beginning of your career. It's Aaron Sorkin who writes every script himself. What's the writer's room like in in that situation? Um, Such a smart writer's room because of Aaron. Uh Um, And he just, I I always say that I feel like working for Aaron. I also was a researcher on Charlie Wilson's war. He brought me into Hollywood. Yeah. So, you know, I I always feel like I got my master's in screenwriting just by being around him for three years. That's awesome. I mean, he just, his standards are for for dramatic conflict um, and you know, and humor, you know, his stuff is so perfectly humorous in some ways. Um, and that rat-a-tat dialogue, all that stuff. I, I mean, I'm not saying anything new, but really to be working with him day in and day out for more than a year and a half in Studio 60, but prior to that for about a year on Charlie Wilson, um, I feel incredibly fortunate. Was it a similar kind of gig? I mean, I imagine there was a lot of research involved with Studio 60 since he would end up writing most of the scripts himself. Is the writer's room there to sort of feed him ideas and do research or, or what's sort of the point of a writer's room with a Sorkin show? Um, you write you write what he calls memos. And so maybe you'll do, a, you don't really do sample scenes. I, I'm, 
I'm trying to, it was so long ago now. Yeah, of um, I mean, he is by, he, he is the writer. He is the king of his shows. It is in dispute, you know, not disputed. Um, a lot of pro-con memos, which I still in my head when I'm writing do sort of, okay, I want both characters to be right. You know, and you take an issue and you take one of the characters has the pro side, one has the con side, and they're both completely legitimately right in their own minds. They're rational um, because it's not an interesting scene if one person dominates the entire time. I mean, it's got to be a a well-matched boxing match. I love that. Yeah. He, I, I remember reading an interview with him where he was talking about after Steve Jobs came out, he said, you know, he writes his characters as if they're making their argument to God um, mm. about, you know, why they should get into heaven. Um, yeah. I mean, and then, you know, going back to the West Wing, so many of the um, great moral issues that he gets into, both sides are equally correct. Um, that's and right. that, that's what makes him so juicy and interesting. Yeah. And, you know, he was my first intro to Hollywood. And I had come from 11 years in newsrooms as a journalist. And one of the things that felt so familiar and reassuring to me was he was all about verisimilitude and research. And to a reporter, a journalist, you know, it was music to my ears. And so a lot of it, he would say, go back and research this and find me the best arguments on both sides. Um, And I still rely on, on those journalistic skills even now. I mean, mm-hmm. today I have two interviews with New Mexico legislatures because I don't know. Can I curse? Can <laughs> you no? definitely can curse. Fuck um, yeah. I don't know jack shit about the New Mexico legislature. So I need to, you know, I can only find out so much reading online. Like I need this. This is for one of your pitches? For my outline for this MRC script. Okay. Um, so I'm speaking to uh, a current male member of the legislature and a former female member. And, you know, I need to hold on to them as sources to be able to call them. And I often find myself as well when I interview people, you know, they're experts on subjects. I don't want them to tell me, well, that would never happen. What I need them to tell me is, could this happen? Right. Right. Totally. Now, how do you get those, um, how do you get those phone calls set? Um, why sometimes just online, I'll see an abstract paper written and they'll quote someone. Sometimes I'll call a university, um, yesterday I put up on a Sunday, I put up a crowdsourcing, Hey, Facebook friends, anyone know anyone hmm. with any knowledge of the New Mexico legislature? Let me tell you in about 15 minutes, I had three sources. It was amazing. Huh. And then you'll just call the office of the person you want to talk to and you'll just explain who you are and maybe, you know, have them look up your IMDB page or something. And, and well, talk to by you. doing it through Facebook, all of them said, let me contact them and see if they're available. So you already, ha- it's not a cold call. You already have an intro, That's great. which is really nice. That's great. But so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, you know, we, we've talked about this process of being in the writer's room, developing, writing on your own, pitching. Um, in what part of this giant process of being a TV writer um, do you feel sort of most creatively satisfied and fulfilled? When, when are you happiest at work? Um, I think you touched on this. I, am, I, I feel like I get paid to write the outline and I write the script for free. Hmm. Writing those those scenes of dialogue and um, being able to just have some elbow room and, you know, sprinkle it with some jokes or sprinkle it with some color or even a little runner that maybe hadn't even been in the outline. That to me is so, so much fun. And I, I think I'm unusual, maybe not, but I don't, to me, a blank screen is not stressful. Hmm. That is um, really 
so exciting to me. I know that sounds so dorky, but it is. <laughs> no, yeah. I, making something of nothing, I mean, there's no better feeling than that. That's a great thing. Actually, doing scene work to me is the most creative, most fun part of it. And, you know, I'm just, I'm always so curious. So when you're actually writing, you know, you're not outlining, you're actually writing the script. Um, how long can you kind of go for? Can you write for more than two hours? Can you write for more than one hour? It completely depends on the script, um, how much juice I have, if, uh, if it's clear to me, if the conditions are, <laughs> are cooperating with me in my house right. at the time. Um, so it depends. Well, so let me ask you, I mean, when you're on deadline, I'm sure all this goes out the window, but when you do actually have time, like this morning, to sit down and write, um, you know, what is what does your desk look like? Um, what uh, what do you have in front of you? Do you have researched books uh, in front of you? Do you have a, a dictionary? Do you have, um, uh, you know, what do you need to get into a position to write? Well, first of all, here's honest, scary uh-huh. but honest. Because I work at home, let me just tell you, maybe it's a stalling tactic, but I cannot have dirty dishes in the sink. It, so, Are you writing in the kitchen? <laughs> sometimes, but just knowing that dirty just dishes knowing. are in the sink, uh-huh. I don't know why, okay? Uh-huh. That's just my thing. So so you know the kitchen is going to be sort of clean. Um, so you'll spend like I'll, half an hour, the first half hour of writing is cleaning the kitchen. <laughs> well, maybe 10 minutes, 10 uh-huh. minutes. And, but in a weird way, it's part of my process. I think about what I'm going to, um, what my first endeavor is going to be. Is it going to be, am I going to start with writing the kicker? Am I going to start with the runner? Am I going to, you know, am I going to, sometimes some days later on in scripts, one of the last things I do is just go through, this is off point. You asked me what my no, desk no. looks like, but um, one of the like really, really mm, last polishes I do is um, scene directions. And have I painted those scenes so that it's an interesting read for the executive? Interesting. Um, just because, you know, I find if they are very sort of uh, communist in their sparseness, it mm-hmm. just feels robotic. And you want to, yep. if you can slow down the read in a good way and make it, you know, make them savor it and enjoy it, you know, you're, you're helping your script out. Oh, I totally agree. I read, uh, I reread the, the Fargo pilot, Noah Hawley's Fargo pilot on the train this yeah. morning from New York to New Haven. And it's, uh, I mean, it's filled with just incredibly literary action yeah. lines, scene directions. Um, uh, and, and it makes it, yeah, it's about a thousand times a better read. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, enough about the dishes and the scenes. Um, <laughs> but no, it's interesting. Have... While you're doing the dishes, you're, you're getting prepared mentally for the scene you're going to write. You're figuring out what you're, you know, what you're going to attack first. That's, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And then damn it all when there are no more dishes in the <laughs> right. and I actually have to go upstairs and write. Uh-huh. Um, I have an old wooden uh, table that was from my, um, the grandmother of my daughter's dad. And so it's probably 80 years old and it's, just a big table. It's not really a desk. Mm-hmm. I have a little rolling chair, like a kneeling chair. Um, there's a printer to the left. There um, is artwork from my daughter all around. That's great. And there are little oak tag files with projects I'm working on in a little, in a stack. Um, but I, I, I can't have too much clutter around me or I start to yeah. feel like I'm suffocating a little. Mm-hmm. And then... Um... Do you go on the internet? Do you check Twitter before you start writing? Look, I, I, <laughs> I'm suffering Confess. with Twitter right now. I mean, uh-huh. Donald Trump has made actually yeah. holding a job really challenging for me. So <laughs> right. I try to leave my phone downstairs. Um, That's right. 
I'd be lying if I didn't say I'd come down every 45 minutes, an hour to grab more coffee. And I, I might lose 15 minutes on Twitter. But wait, I'm sorry. Did I miss that? Are you not writing on a computer? I am. But if I, I mean, there's, I cannot boot up Twitter on my laptop. I have to like sequester it on my phone only. Wow. No, that that takes a lot of will. No, that's smart. I, I'm constantly checking it um, while I'm writing, which is a terrible, terrible habit. Um, but I do find it gives you a little juice. Like when I finish a scene and I'm just like exhausted before starting the next scene, I don't know, giving a five-minute Twitter you know, scan I find is a little bit rejuvenating. Um, yeah. But then so so you're writing and it, okay, so it, does, it depends on what the project is, but you could end up writing all morning. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be uh, on outline. I mean, outline's really hard. I don't know that I'm going to do more than 45 yeah. minutes on this outline today. It's yeah. just really hard going. Yeah, it's draining. Um, it's draining. But if I'm on script, three to four hours. Yeah, no, that's great. Cheers. Uh, yeah, four hours of just creative writing. I mean, it's a funny thing. When we just sit here and talk about it, it sounds like nothing. But when you're actually doing it, yeah, it's in, it's insanely draining. Um just emotionally, just creating something from nothing. Um, all right, but speaking but, of which. But fun. Yeah. And I also feel like I should, and I think all writers should be able to expense our pets because my dog has helped <laughs> me on dog walks figure yeah. more things out. So sometimes I'll have, you know, I'll write two to three hours and I'll take my dog on a big hike or a loop around the Silver Lake Reservoir right. out in L.A. Right. And I'll come back sort of you know, sweaty and yeah. covered in dog dirt from the dog park and I'll finish writing because it, it's just helped me push away from the screen for a little bit. Totally. And they say, you know, the endorphins have gotten going and they say just walking, getting the left, right brain sort of um, working in sync uh, helps a lot. Um, well, I'm so glad you backed up my experience <laughs> with science because I did not know that. Yeah, I had a therapist who said that once um, and I sort of didn't do any follow-up research on it, but it sounds right. And yeah, walking sure. definitely does help with ideas. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Um, so I want to play a clip uh, from your work. Um, so this is from the pilot of Good Girls Revolt. Um, okay. For people who don't know, it's inspired by a true story uh, and focuses on the group of female researchers at News of the Week magazine in 1969. This is from page 18 of the pilot script. It's interior photo room. Nora Ephron, who's been introduced as wry and inquisitive in her mid-20s, enters. Sensitive researcher Cindy Reston uh, arranges letters for caption. So let's play the clip. Do you like working at News of the Week? Mm. Mm-hmm. For me, it is ideal. Okay, you're not married yet, are you? Right, see, um, my husband, Lenny, gave me a year to gather materials for my first novel while he finishes law school and gets a job at a firm, probably in Connecticut. Um, so I chose the magazine. Um, for me, it's a dream. And what happens after a year? I get serious and start a family. A serious family? Please don't invite me to the dinner parties. <laughs> Why don't you just stay here and get stories? That's the only way to become a writer. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm late for my, you know, but I always use a diaphragm, so I don't understand how I, um...
Maybe he put a hole in it. People do that, you know. Lenny? He doesn't even know where I keep that thing. I... Maybe he does. And you don't think that my being a novelist sounds like a lark? I don't joke about writing or cooking. I don't joke about drinking or cooking. <laughs> See, we're the perfect duo. <laughs> I love that scene. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of feels like the whole show is in that scene. You know, Cindy feeling like her only choice is to quit work and get serious about her family, even though she loves her job, and potentially being forced into quitting by her husband with this pregnancy. Um, wonder if you can tell us anything, anything about that scene. Um, well, just you know, hearkening back to our earlier conversation, that was a scene that was just such a joy to write, um, and I, I so wanted. Again, back to the Aaron Sorkin argument, I so wanted um, Cindy's reality to seem so rational to her. Well, like, you know, after a year, I get serious and start a family because that's, you know, that was her, that right. was her job. Um, right. And then to Nora Ephron, it's like, well, <laughs> if you want to be a writer, stay here. And so it doesn't feel like a pro-con, but it, it actually is a, one big pro-con memo mm-hmm. on, you know, if you want to be a writer, how do you do that? Right. Right. No, it's it's very easy to understand both of their um, arguments. And we feel for Cindy because she's in such a difficult position. Um, but at the same time, it's, you know, she maybe she has different priorities than Nora has for her life. Um, are, are you, by the way, I assume you're a giant Nora Ephron fan. I mean, that's a bold move to, to put words in Nora Ephron's mouth. I was not very familiar with Nora Ephron's really? work before this project. Um, I, I wasn't. And I... I mean, I loved when Harry met Sally, but I don't know that I've ever read one of her books until this project. Um, so in a nice way, I came at it a little fresh. Uh, I have to tell you, though, even hearing that scene, I get a little emotional just because of the, oh, my God, talent that Grace Gummer brought to the Nora Ephron character and that Aaron Dark brought to the Cindy Reston character. Yeah. You put those two women in a scene with, there's no car chases, there's no sex, there's yeah. no music. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but we, what I really loved, and they let us do it, was strip out that music, you know, that music, you know, that says, we're going to tell you how to feel. I mean, it really felt like a play. It was very yes. bare bones and artisanal. And those two women, without ever raising their voice, without histrionics, and I would say that for men too, um, so clearly revealed their characters. Yep. Yeah, no, completely. And I love that they weren't afraid to take long pauses um, during yeah. the scene. Um, by the way, I also love that, that Grace Gummer, you know, is Meryl Streep's daughter playing Nora Ephron. Meryl Streep starred in Nora Ephron's first movie, Silkwood, and then starred in... Um, and Grace Gummer Harper. grew up with Nora Ephron. I mean, she met her several times socially and knew her. And so in a weird way, I the first time Grace Gummer uttered like the first line as Nora Ephron, I thought, oh, okay. She was blunt and uncompromising. And, um, you know, the broadcast term is she'd be unlikable because she didn't sort of smile and charm people to make them feel more comfortable. She was whip smart Mm -hmm. and she spoke her mind and Grace just got that. So interesting, and it, I'm I'm really surprised, and but it makes a lot of sense that you weren't a giant Nora Ephron fan before writing this. I am a giant Nora Ephron fan, and I think I would have had a lot of trouble 
dramatizing her, um, but you were sort of taking her from a distance. Uh, yeah, I think I probably would have been way too intimidated. Right. Had I been. Right. Um, yeah. Just but her yeah, old, it was. Yeah, I was her old stories in the New Yorker about real estate, and you know the novel Harper and I Love, and so many of her screenplays. Um, she's just such a sort of classic, brilliant New Yorker writer. Um, yeah, she, she. I mean, she's you know also sort of one of the great wits of all time. Um, and there was one scene that that I have to say I really got emotional even even writing because I feel like it's such a universal experience for a woman whether it's in 1969 or 2019. Um, just this feeling of being so excited and passionate about something and then being put in your place. Right. Um, and so it's a scene that you didn't play, but it, it's 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 when a character is just like, I did it. I nailed the story. I knew I could do it. And her boyfriend who she's sleeping with says, you're not a reporter. You're a researcher. Right. And it's just such a kick in the teeth. And, but leading up to that, she unrolls, she tries to placate him and tell him what a great reporter he was. And she remembered when he called in about the Tet Offensive and dictated 1800 words that changed the way, you know, people thought about that conflict. And, and she's just, stroking him and saying, I know how it feels now that adrenaline rush. And he just kicks her in the mouth, basically. Mm. Love that. That's great. Um, you know, our mutual friend, um, Alex says, you know, he told me that you take research very seriously and you're just, you're great at it, um, that you're determined you. to find the little human details that makes, yeah. you know, scripts feel alive. So this, you know, this show takes place in 1969. It's sort of kind of based on a true story. Um, what was the research for Good Girls Revolt like? Was it talking to a lot of people? Was it reading a lot of books? What was it? Yes, and yes, yeah. and catching up on the whole Nora Ephron. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but also really contextualizing it and and realizing what was going on. I mean, 1969. It was in a lot of ways. It feels like now, which is you can't believe every week how much ground we cover politically. Um, just such a, a time of upheaval, people feeling like they needed to take sides. Um, and what I, what struck me most when I was doing the research was how you could have a newsroom full of researchers of women, all who came from seven sister schools and their experiences where they sort of fell on the line in terms of sexual, cultural, and, um, uh, even religious values could be so vastly different. And then if you had met them two years earlier or two years in the future, vastly different from that. It was just such fast moving waters, I guess is what I'm, that's yeah. what I came away from all my research with. Right. And so was it a lot of talking to people? Who were you talking to? Um, it was a lot of talking to Lynn Povich, who was the named plaintiff um, and who in the TV show was inspired by her, journalistic retelling of the lawsuit. Um, it was a lot of reading. It was a lot of reading. I mean, I read a lot of music journalism. Hmm. Uh, you know, and one of the things I did is I, I put one of the young women had just come back to New York after living in San Francisco for six months, which was like living in a spaceship that had time traveled. San Francisco was sort of years ahead at that point in this, in these fast moving, uh, this fast moving revolution. So just being able to sort of capture what had happened between Woodstock in, you know, summer of 69 to December of 69 when our pilot starts, that was this incubator for social change. Right. 
Um, how do you know when enough research is enough and you should start writing? You know, obviously throughout the series, you know, you, you did a whole season, so you were researching throughout, I'm sure. But when you were just writing yeah. the pilot, how'd you know when to put your pen, you know, pens up? When I get a trigger finger and I want to start writing, when I'm impatient with the research and I know the story I want to tell through these fictional characters. And sometimes, um, you know, as you know, TV is so, so technical. Sometimes they'll say, we have to collapse these two locations. Uh, we need to, you know, we, this character seems redundant of this one or whatever. And so then you're sort of changing some of the stuff. So you dip back into the research. And again, that question that I always ask people, I know it doesn't often happen, but could this happen? Right, right. Totally. Bet, you know, praying that they say yeah. yes. Um, all right, cool. Um, well, you've given us so much time. I just want to ask, um, you know, one more question. And we'll let you get back to work or clean the kitchen or whatever is next. Up. Uh, <laughs> the kitchen's clean. Okay? Oh, right. Because you wrote this morning already. Of course, it has to be. Um, do you think, I'm, I'm always curious, do you think reading makes you a better writer? You know, one of my favorite screenwriters, Scott Frank, talks about how he learns structure from reading and rereading Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett. And your buddy Aaron Sorkin uh, recommends David Mamet's writing in restaurants for sort of having the courage to start writing. Um, are there specific books or scripts that have helped you? I just, as you said all this, I'm walking into my bedroom to look at my nightstand, uh -huh. which is piled with books. I read constantly. In my 20s, I didn't own a television, um, which I... I know sounds like some pretentious bullshit right now, but I just didn't because I was a journalist. I was moving around. And by the way, at the time, TVs were pretty big and heavy then. Right. Um, so I would read The New Yorker every week. I mean, cover to cover. Um, yeah. And don't throw that Nora Ephron shit in my face right now, okay, Aaron? Because I did read it cover to cover, but I still wasn't a huge fangirl. Um, but, and I read just, I read books nonstop. And uh -huh. one of the things I did in my 20s that I still try to do as often as possible is I read biographies, which I think, um, again, it speaks to that journalist in me, which is you cannot make up the real stuff the universe serves up. Mm -hmm. People's lives are amazing. I mean, one of the best biographies I've ever read, it sounds so crazy and non-TV, no, is, is this um, biography about Lord Byron, written by this French author, Leslie Marchand. And you get at the end of it how this um, how this very depressed guy with a club foot became this Lothario, this brilliant, incredibly depressive character who put on a mask and would walk into these pubs and pretend to be the life of the party and then could turn around and write a poem like Darkness, which, you know, you pretty much want to jump off a bridge after reading. <laughs> and she, or he, sorry, brought to life this, this guy that you just study in college and you think is, I don't know, sitting on this manor writing poems. I mean, he was a tortured soul. Right. And that helps you when you're creating character or that is just sort of in the background of your mind at all times? I mean, there's... The biography motivates character. You know, those, those origin stories, those childhood moments are, that's the nectar of a character. Dana Calvo. Pretty great. I really like talking to her. I stupidly didn't ask her what it's like working with Mike Nichols uh, when she was a researcher in Charlie Wilson's War. Well, gonna have to get her back. But it's fun hearing those stories about Narcos and Sorkin and Good Girls Revolt and hearing how she writes and pitches and what her days are like. She's cool. Um, thank you so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. 
If you guys dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week. 